politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here at Blaze Media on Friday, March 26th. And folks, this is the one-year anniversary. This is the Friday when our government spent over $2 trillion to underwrite, incentivize, and encourage a lockdown, a long-term lockdown, what started out as a temporary one a year ago. I can't believe it's a year to the day that completely lied to us about the lack of treatment for this virus, about the nature of how it spreads, the ability to stop it, what we can do they didn't do, what we mustn't do they did. They killed more people from the lockdown, but also from the virus itself by locking down people, depleting their vitamin D levels, giving them false sense of security in masks rather than early therapeutics and prophylactics. We're going to have a really, really special doctor on today, scientist, to commemorate this day, going through a round robin of all of the science on this that we know, from transmission to PCR testing uh, to geographical and seasonal patterns, immunity, the vaccine. We're going to try to cover as much as we can, obviously, vitamin D being the master key to the immune system. So I want to get back to that. Um, but first, I do want to start just with some of the news of the day with the legislatures that we we're talking about yesterday. It's shocking that to the day, it was March 26th of last year, that I wrote an article titled, it's unbelievable, March 26, 2020, Hurwitz, state legislatures must convene to control governor's growing ty- tyranny. Here we are 12 months later, and most states haven't properly done this. Despite everything we know, 12 months later, I wrote this 12 months ago. And um, we're going to get to that. There is some news going on in the state legislatures I do want to get to. But first, a word from our sponsor today, Start Mail. Folks, you think that Gmail and Yahoo are free, but they're not. You pay for it with your privacy. As we're learning, nothing is private. The tech companies have access to all of our email. Believe me, if you're working on political projects, uh, you better watch out. Uh, They are now compromising very sensitive information. It could also be business plans, medical records, social security numbers. Nothing is secure. That's what's so disquieting about this. And we should be very concerned about email surveillance. It's something that I really didn't think about until this year. And then again, you also have the identity theft and phishing attacks and things like that, aside from the political attacks as well. That's why I trust Startmail to secure my email. It makes me feel secure. They give you a ton of storage for a really good price. Um, By the way, I just set mine up. It's Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. I still have my old email, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. I'm still using that for the time being, but I will be... Using over time, Daniel Horowitz at smartmail.com. But folks, it keeps my email private. 
I know if I'm sending something to a team leader, a political plan in a state, the email is encrypted, even if the recipient doesn't use encryption. That's the important thing about that. Um, and that means big tech can't read, scan, analyze, or sell the data. Not even Big Brother can snoop around. Um, because Startmail deletes. They, and when they delete, they delete it forever. And it's their own servers. So they're not going to have the whole parlor Amazon problem. It's backed by the most stringency, stringent privacy laws in the world. You could get unlimited anonymous aliases too. Um, this feature protects your main email address from spam and phishing attacks. So please, folks, don't trust big tech. I don't trust them. Neither should you. Start securing your email privacy with Startmail. Sign up today and you'll get 50 percent off your first year okay 50 percent off go to startmail.com slash conservative that's startmail with a t s-t-a-r-t mail m-a-i-l.com slash conservative for 50 percent off your first year startmail.com slash conservative so folks we had the news yesterday again this is the importance of state legislatures and getting on top of them you saw that the Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson, after screwing us on the COVID fine bill, he did sign the sports bill, banning males from female sports. I have to check as of this time if he signed the other bill because there's also a bill to block castration and hormone changing stuff for minors. And I think he understood that he could only veto once because remember, unlike in South Dakota, where you need two-thirds to override, and they didn't have the two-thirds in the Senate, here in Arkansas, you only need 51%. So I think that's why Asa Hutchinson gave in, because he already used his capital on, on getting them to not override his veto on the fine bill. So again, I mean, this just underscores the importance of it. We also had a victory in Georgia on election integrity, finally requiring identification for mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. Gee, I guess that's an admission they didn't have it until now. So that is a victory as well. I have a lot of news on the mask front I do want to get to. Um, but again, folks, there is a lot we need to focus on. I saw reports yesterday that the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, took off all the mask mandates, even everyone. Nope. The school superintendent announced mask requirements for K, that's kindergarten, through 12, remain in effect. Kathy Hoffman, the state superintendent of public instruction. So this is continuing. This is continuing. And it's going to continue. It's going to continue because the fact that we allowed it to continue, that we allowed governors and mayors to have this much power, after producing no evidence, no efficacy, no public hearings, no debates, no floor votes, what's to stop them from keeping this forever? And that's why I want to talk about my column before we introduce our special guest for March 26th of last year. I start off like this. I'm just reading it. It's become a game. Every day... At a, spe a specific time, each governor and now even county executive announces a press conference where, with the flick of the pen, 
They issue edicts that violate more inalienable natural rights than at any time in the nation's history. What started out as a prudent move has now devolved into a free-for-all of tyranny against peaceful citizens as authorities release criminals from prison. It's time to demand that state legislatures reconvene and start setting parameters and guidelines. It's time to return to self-governance. I said that after one week. And notice I called it prudent. Now, to a certain extent, I will be honest with you. It was so one-sided. It was so hard to come out and look like you didn't care about it at the time. So even I was kind of hedging a little bit with some of my verbiage. But you have to forgive me. I mean, that was March 26th. So my point was, okay, you did this depending on the state, from usually from between March 15th and March 20th. California did it a few days earlier. And I was like, all right, a couple days. But now, like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. What are we doing here? There's no reason why a legislature can't convene. That was the point I made an entire year ago. And um, that's the story. I warned states are moving to indefinite lockdowns without presenting any evidence that this is needed over and beyond the distancing they're already doing. It's past time for us to ask questions. Placing Americans indefinitely under house arrest without any due process, transparency, time limit, guidelines, or checks and balances on a single executive is something that should shake us to our core. This is true even if we were dealing with Ebola which has a 60% death rate. It would certainly be necessarily in that case, but still we should be jarred by the short-term and long-term implications of one county or state official wielding such power and economic, logistical, mental health, and physical health problems it's creating. Mark my words. Um, Again, this is a quote from myself a year ago. This genie will not be put back in the bottle. So, here's where we are, folks. There's something very disquieting about what is motivating these governors. What is motivating these governors to act so callously against liberty and not even treat this as an evil at all, even a necessary one, if that. And then I said, patriots need to prepare for this shutdown if and when the federal government offers guidance to cheap proper balance and... Showdown, I mean, I, I call on Trump to have a showdown, which, of course, he never did. Are we really okay with giving governors and county executives this much power indefinitely? Um, we want strong leadership during a time of crisis, and you can't have legislatures making every last decision, but there must be some checks and balances or at least transparency measures checking these emergency powers that violate the essence of the Declaration of Independence, especially when much of the science driving the underlying push for lockdown appears to be driven by the same politicized academia as global warming. It's time for patriots to flood their state legislators with calls and demand that they reconvene and deal with some of the liberty issues, crime and logistical and fiscal issues inherent in this crisis. It's time to return to self-government. I called upon legislatures to do the following, to require that any violation of the Constitution under the guise of stemming an epidemic expire after seven days. And yet now, after a year, they won't even do 30 days in most states. In order to renew it, the governor would need to submit clear findings to the legislature 
and publicize them online, articulating why this is the least restrictive means necessary to achieve the goal. Um, address the parameters of why some functions are deemed essential and weigh them against public safety concerns. No top state-level official may get paid until the lockdown orders are rescinded. Stop the release of criminals, because that was a big issue at the time. Rein in the edicts of some cities that are taking these measures too far. And then there must be a rigorous debate about the underlying data driving specific strategies and whether they are really prudent. And then I said, Trump must tell these local officials that if they continue to destroy the economy after these measures are no longer necessary, they own the mess. Right now, they are counting on getting bailed out from the economic mess and don't see any downside to their tyrannical virtue signaling. The bill headed for Trump's desk now sends $150 billion to the states. That must change. They can't play up state powers in both directions, become dictators, but then count on a federal bailout. Boy, how... Ahead of the time I was. And I talk about give me liberty or give me death. Um, I quote John Adams. Liberty must at all hazards be supported. We have to, a right to defend it, derive from our maker. But if we had not, our fathers have earned and bought it for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasures, and their, and their blood. Here we go, folks. Where are we a year later? Well, a year later, we know this was the greatest crime against humanity. Now, our next guest is sponsored by our other sponsor today, ConstitutionCoach.com. Patriot Academy under ConstitutionCoach.com will take you out on the best handgun defense training, almost like a vacation, in Front Sight, Nevada, April 25th or May 30th. Pick those two dates. You could see all the dates lined up there. Two-day classes, four-day classes. We learn about the Constitution at night and have the best handgun training during the day. You will come out like a pro. If you're already good at guns, you'll have a lot that you'll learn and practice and learn some good strategies. But don't think you have to have experience. You really don't. So I already I bought my ticket for the April 25th one. I can't promise, but I'm going to try to come to the May 30th as well. Um, I know I did initially promise that, but the dates have changed. I'm going to try to go to both at least for part of the time so we can meet together. We could strategize together. We could get team leaders, um, have a great time, mask-free at Frontside. Sorry, I can't help the flight accommodations. That there's nothing I can do about, but at least at Frontside, you know, this stuff doesn't exist. It's a sanctuary for liberty, gun training, constitution learning it is truly a great time to meet myself and other members of this audience now when introducing the next guest i just want to reiterate what we started out with that here we were a year ago when we were giving chemotherapy times a million to the american people based on an unknown and based on what we knew at that moment to be voodoo, the notion that this is how you deal with a virus, the notion that this is how you're going to save lives, the notion that this is what government could even do, even if it did save lives. And yet, there were so many people across the country that could have been brought in for congressional hearings, state legislative hearings, to talk about the immunology, 
of this virus, the way it spreads, the, how exactly it kills people, and therefore how we could reverse it. You know, one of the things is I've noted with Dr. Peter McCullough when he, when he was on the show last week that it's not like people's eyes bulge out and they spontaneously combust from this virus. Of course, it could be deadly to some people, but it was a known biological sequence. Really? There was no way to treat it? No way to treat it but some voodoo rain dance, moon dance, wear a mask, lockdown, which of course pr- proved very early on not to work. Only pain, no gain. And we didn't call upon people like Dr. Ryan Cole. I first saw him with some of my dealings with the state legislature. I saw he gave a little presentation uh, to some people in the legislature. And the House has passed some good bills there. The Senate hasn't. Twelve months later, we are operating on false premises. So I wanted to knock down one myth after another, take notes, get ready to buckle your seat, and get ready to be informed. Dr. Ryan Cole is a board-certified pathologist in Idaho. He's a Mayo Clinic-trained surgical and dermatopathology uh, um, trained physician. He's a former spokesman for the College of American Pathologists. But at the same time, what he does now and has been doing for 18 years is owning and operating Cole Diagnostics, the largest independent, and that's key, independent laboratory in Idaho, where he's done over 100,000 COVID tests. He's trained in virology and immunology. He's seen over 600,000 biopsies in his career. So he understands pathogens, particularly the testing and specimens of this virus, how it behaves in the body, how it behaves in the world, the cycles, all the vexing questions we have from everything to the immunity of the virus, the vaccines, the geographical seasonal trends. We're going to try to get to it all today with Dr. Ryan Cole. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, my only uh, problem is that I didn't find you earlier on. I was riveted by your half-an-hour presentation, the Idaho Freedom Foundation at the at the state capitol there in Boise. And I don't even know where to start, but I guess let's start with vitamin D. I will tell you, like every other person, I didn't know anything about this because that's medicine. I knew the politics. I knew where the government was coming from with the lockdowns. I knew it was voodoo. I knew masks were voodoo. But one thing I didn't know early on is that there actually was a very logical um, reason why this virus targeted certain people at certain times in certain places, and there's a way to treat it. So I want you to start off and take as much time as you need to talk about who is vulnerable and what could be done. And let me just frame the conversation just to give you a guide because I know this is very wide open. Someone recently told my wife that they were told it's either a vaccine or a ventilator for you. With that, take it from there. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I kind of like to speak hyperbolically on this one. You know, I, I've thrown the statement out there, really there's no such thing as flu and cold season. There's really only low vitamin D season. And the knee-jerk reaction with a lot of people is, oh, that's that vitamin stuff. And my answer is, no, it's a basic molecule in our body. It's a, it's a hormone, technically a pro-hormone based on the cholesterol molecule. 
we make vitamin D through the UVB rays of the sunshine when they penetrate the atmosphere only a couple hours a day in spring and summer. And it controls our immune system. It literally triggers hundreds to thousands of genes to turn on or turn off. And so go your vitamin D levels. So goes your ability to fight off viruses and pathogens and bacteria and pneumonia and ear infections in little kiddos or COVID-19. And interestingly, we don't just have a viral pandemic in the world. We have an international vitamin D deficiency pandemic due to lifestyles and certain cultural practices in many nations. So in North America alone, 70% of us are deficient in vitamin D, i.e. we are immune suppressed as a population. So if you don't have D in normal levels, whatever virus comes along, you don't have that strength of your immune army because those genes can't turn on and off. You have a receptor for vitamin D on every nucleus in every cell in your body, and it's waiting for a call. Those nuclei are waiting, what do I do now? Do I ramp up this protein, this cytokine? Do I ramp down that cytokine? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So D is this master key, basically creating this ballet of the immune system, making sure everything operates properly. If you're deficient in it, you do worse no matter what infection you're hit with. And so, for example, um, there have been some studies showing if you get your D levels up to mid-normal range, you can't develop acute respiratory distress. And acute respiratory distress is essentially the manifestation in the lungs of cytokine storm that you hear about in the news that kills people. Sure. So the problem is there are a lot of things that make us D deficient. You know, in the fall and winter, because of where we live above or below the 35th parallel in the world, you can run outside naked for four or five months and those UVB rays bounce off the atmosphere. You will synthesize zero vitamin D for those four to five months. And when do we see flu and cold seasons? In the fall and winter. And why is that? In the spring and summer, when we're outdoors synthesizing vitamin D, great, our immune systems are strong. In the fall and the winter, well, we're immune suppressed as those levels drop. And, you know, a problem in North America, we've seen our, our horrible outcomes compared to many countries in the world, um, vitamin D is one of the fat-soluble vitamins, and we know we have a national obesity problem. 67% of Americans are obese. Well, instead of going into your circulation and tickling all those little genes on and off and providing a strong immune response, instead it gets sequestered or hidden in the fat and becomes less bioavailable mm. for, your, for your immune health. So that's, you know, those are some big challenges. And, and here, here's a problem. You know, we, we have known since about week three into this pandemic, uh, you know, the unfortunate outcomes in certain groups, in the age groups especially. So we've known since the get-go who's passing from this. Well, in, in the nursing homes, 82 to 88% of nursing home patients are vitamin D deficient. Um, the darker your skin tone, the farther north you live, the lower your vitamin D levels are. Melanin is protective against the sun. And so we look at the outcomes in 
the African-American or the Hispanic populations that are dying and having more severe disease in northern latitudes. Some of the first deaths in the UK and Sweden were among the migrants who mm. were living in a northern climate with yeah. dark, darker skin. And, you know, 80, so it, it's pure biology. It's pure biology. I know there are some, you know, social issues, absolutely, or tighter housing clusters, et cetera, some obesity issues in some of those populations, just like in the general population. But from a biological point of view, the further north those darker-skinned individuals live, they're at immune risk. And so 83% of African Americans in North America are vitamin D deficient. Uh, 70% of Latinos, 72% of Native Americans, 47% of Caucasians are deficient, and about 70% are insufficient. So we have a broad immune suppression of an entire population in our nation as well as other nations. And this should be public health message number one, two, and three. So, 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 Doctor, you're basically saying, if I get you correctly, that this misfiring, misdiagnosis, and then from there, obviously, a, a maltreatment of the virus from our governments really w- w- was spawned by a pre-existing lack of information that there was always this notion in the medical establishment that vi- there's no way to treat viruses. There's no no way to treat viruses. But as it turns out, it's really not true because what you're saying is, first of all, you have to understand where they come from and why they're able to invade your system. And you're saying the 800-pound gorilla in that room is the immune system's master key. That's that's the vitamin D. And then what we're going to get to later, too, is, you know, yes, there are treatments to reverse the viral um, replication and the inflammatory response as well. We'll get to that as a separate part. But did I get you correctly that this is true really of other viruses that we kind of throw our hands up and say, yeah, there's not much we can do about it. Absolutely correct. And, and that's what's fascinating is a virus is always going to look for the weakest host, just like a lion in the savannah is going to look for the weakest wildebeest. And we, from a public health point of view, I mean, even Dr. Fauci back in November, you know, said, oh, gosh, I take eight to 9,000 units a day in a little off-the-cuff interview. And I thought to myself, <laughs> that's a well, lot. That is a lot to some people. And, and I, I'm not going to recommend a dose. The Endocrinology Society says, you know, without testing, you can safely take up to 4,000 international units sure. a day. Um, I do recommend people get their levels checked because everybody's biology is different. And, you know, my, my colleagues will criticize me if I don't mention you. If you're going to take D, then you need to c- consider a little vitamin K2 and magnesium as, as well. That's they're cofactors that, that help in bone bone health as well as magnesium helps in, in viral attack. It's a cofactor with vitamin D and all these immune genes. But yeah, your your point is absolutely correct. We knew beforehand and there are plenty of smart people that are, you know, the medical technocrats in government that know about medical health and the mm. key triggers to health and vitamin D is probably that prima facie part of our immune response. And if we don't have that in adequate levels and we don't emphasize from a public health point of view how critical that is, yeah, we're a perfect setup for the flu, for common cold, for uh, COVID, um, and, and plenty of studies that have shown you can, you can take mammal models, get a low vitamin D population of that mammal, mouse, rat, whatever, 
inoculate their nose with the flu. If they're low in vitamin D, about 74% of those mice or rats will get the flu. If you get a D-sufficient mouse, you inoculate their, their nose, about 30-something percent will get the flu, but they will have a much milder course as though they're just mildly sick. They're still running around and walking around, not malaise and fever and laying yep. in the corner of their cage. So we have known this for eons. And as our obesity in our society has gone up, our vitamin D levels have gone down. One of the prime pushers of low D levels is high fructose corn syrup that's in about 70 to 80% of our shelved foods. And as that's gone up 300% over the last 30 or 40 years in our foods, our vitamin D levels are dropped. We have indoor lifestyles. There's only a small window of the daytime in which you can be outside in which that sunshine and those UVB rays penetrate mm. And, with as much and, and then, and then, and doctor, just just correct me if I'm wrong here as well. That um, it, it's a double-edged sword with with the heat and and the climate. That you know, if you're in a northern area, it doesn't get as much sunlight. So then, prima facie, straight up, you're not getting enough uh, vitamin D. But then, even in a lot of southern places as well, you have the opportunity to get it. But because it's often hot and uncomfortable, where are you going to be in this day and age in the air conditioning indoors? Absolutely correct. And, and that's the irony is people think, oh, it's too hot outside. Those, those would be the hours that, you know, with as much skin exposed as possible, 15, 20 minutes without sunscreen for a fairer skinned individual, the darker your skin, the further north you have to spend, you know, a proportionate longer time outside mm-hmm. without sunscreen. Don't get me wrong. You know, the dermatologist that I serve will get mad at me in terms of biopsies <laughs> and whatnot. But but no, I mean, you need uh, to get a mild pink dose, but in those hot climates, I mean, even in sunny San Diego, they did a study in the office workers and showed, you know, they needed 9,800 units a day to get back up to normal levels. And it, it, it's crazy. You think, oh, sunny Southern California, gosh, their D levels are probably normal. No, you know, they're not outside during, you know, that 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. window of time wow. in which, you know, we're optimizing our immune health with a natural part of so- our body. One of the things I always get asked just on this point is that, well, Daniel, you're the one always saying that, you know, everything should be natural. God made the immune system work properly. What's with all this nuanced stuff that the medical establishment is coming out with? But, well, but then how do you say that naturally everyone needs vitamin D supplements? So you're saying that's because of the lifestyle we live in the old days. You worked outside. Nowadays, I cannot think of a day that I am not in front of my computer from 11 to 3. Right. And and that's the challenge. We almost just have to set, I have a little app I just downloaded, no interest in any company, um, but sure. you know, it's called D-Minder. And so it has a little alarm on it. It says, huh. hey, get outside, get some sunshine right now. And it's a, it's a reminder because yeah, I'm in the lab all day at the computer, at the microscope, under a hood, pipetting, whatever. And yeah, we tend to forget. And, and, and it hasn't be, been part of our public health messaging. So we'll, we don't even tend to think yep. about it be, because it's been pushed to the side. There's always an expensive drug that's going to fix this or fix that. There's no money for any big industry in vitamin D. You know, it's and, and yep. that vitamin D, which we get naturally, to your point, you know, we were designed to synthesize it through our skin. And that vitamin D that we get naturally will get twice as much as if you're taking a pill. And it'll last twice as long physiologically in your body as well. So it's even a better dose to get it naturally. 
And if sure. you take a pill, it takes 10 to 14 days for it to bump your levels up little by little. So, so to be clear, vitamin D, because we're going to talk about treatment, vitamin mm-hmm. D, now they do get vitamin D, you know, you do want to treat it with it, but it's this is more of a long-term thing that that basically last March, this time last year, you're telling me that vitamin D should have been the mask in the toilet paper. <laughs> Correct. It should have been the mask in the toilet paper. We... We, in March, when we first got hit hardest in the northern tiered states, were at the trough, the bottom of our vitamin D levels coming out of wow. winter. That's interesting. And, and you can look at the data from around the world. They did a, a couple of studies in Asia, 96% of individuals in one study, 86 in another, in the ICU were vitamin D deficient. In one hospital study, it was 60% of hospitalized patients were deficient. Another study, 80% were vitamin D deficient. So you can see from studies around the world, the lower your D was, the higher your risk was for being hospitalized and intubated. And even Mayo Clinic, where I trained, you know, just in January came out with a study, look, if you have a level above 30, and I think 30 is way too low, I think everybody should be at 50 or above because that's when all your receptors are saturated. But even at 30, in this Mayo study they, they printed in January, said, look, you have a much higher risk of being intubated or in the ICU or having severe disease if your level is below 30. So the data around the world from major medical centers has confirmed that so goes your vitamin D, so goes your severity of disease, so goes your risk for acquiring COVID, so goes your risk for poor outcomes, so goes your risk for death in this disease. And am I saying vitamin D is the be-all, end-all? No. You know, do we need to work on our, our poor American, or I call it our SAD, standard American diet? Absolutely, we need to modify that SAD diet. Absolutely, we need to have a public health message about obesity because obesity is an inflammatory condition as well. The more obese you are, the more inflamed you are. The more inflamed you are, you're set up for any disease. Exactly. So it's not just heart disease and diabetes, but you're saying that in itself depletes your vitamin D, and as a result, you have the inflammatory response where I guess the the cells don't properly, um, uh, the white blood cells don't properly what, communicate with each other and properly... Um, in other words, when, when people die from this, right, people talk about those that can't breathe, and that's the thing. Their lungs are, are having issues. It's not the virus attacking the lungs. It's the, res- it's the body's response. That's the cytokine storm. Yeah, you don't die from the virus. You die from the immune system overreacting. And vitamin D in any illness, COVID included, will ramp up your immune response and say, hey, let's do this, let's fight that. You, this cytokine signal, this one, ramp up, ramp up, ramp up. And as that conductor of the symphony or the director of the ballet, it says, okay, everything's in check. Now, all these damaging cytokines that are present, now those signals say, okay, you need to ramp down, you need to ramp down, you need to ramp down. Mm. And now everything's back in homeostasis, harmonic as your body convalesces. But if you don't have that signal there, it's willy-nilly anarchy in the immune system. It keeps revving up, revving up, revving up, boom, too much death. So, so basically you're saying, let me just put it in layman's terms, cytokine storm is kind of like 
The cytokines are the, are the signals to the immune systems, so it's a storm of crappy information, kind of like like Fauci then and, and CDC and the NIH, just a storm of bad, one-sided, um, it, ramp up, ramp up, lockdown, lockdown, wear the mask. You know, it's kind of like confusing it, and, and the vitamin D is what modulates that. Yeah, I, I, I like to say it's, you know, henny, penny, henny, penny, the sky is falling, and everything's going haywire instead of, you know, a beautiful... Uh, stanza of poetry where you just see how it flows and then it flows. And, and, and that's what happens in our immune response is willy-nilly chaos and bad signaling without this proper conductor present. Got it. Okay, so I want to, I mean, we've got a lot to get to. Um, I think we're going to use the vitamin D to do a little bit of uh, geographical patterns here. That's Everyone's yes. always fascinated, yes, fascinated definitely. in that. And, you know, obviously... Um, you know, it's been proven again and again and again that there is zero correlation between the non-pharmaceutical interventions and what happened. You have all these places that did all the lockdowns, like LA, they have 50% seroprevalence. You have places that did less of it, obviously, in Scandinavia, didn't have the problem. Um, so talk about the role of vitamin D as well as some other factors as well um, the question I get a lot is, hey, northern climates, you know, should, shouldn't they be hit the worst because of the vitamin D? But you find, in fact, that Scandinavia and, um, you know, Canada and some of these areas seem to do very well. Yes. And so, you know, certain Scandinavian countries have done well. Norway, for example, they supplement... 35 foods on their food shelf for their population with vitamin D. So you look at their rates and, and you, uh, you know, you can get dietary vitamin D as well. You know, your fatty fishes and mushrooms and a couple other foods, but you know, they're a high fish consumption nation. So their vitamin D levels are probably pretty good. And you look at those, you know, you look at Sweden, Finland, Norway, the people that died quickly at the highest rate or mostly the Somalian, Ethiopian migrants yes. living in a northern climate. So again, darker skin, northern climate, lower D, higher depth. Uh, Japan, what's their primary uh, food source? Fish is mm. their primary food source, vitamin D levels. Um, you know, geographically, some of these northern nations, obviously because of flu and cold seasons, a lot of us have been exposed to flus and colds and common cold coronaviruses in the past. So even in Sweden, for example, um, at the Karolinska Institute, they showed a lot of us or a lot of their citizens, 70 to 80 percent, when they took their blood, put it in a little Petri dish with the virus, with their white blood cells, their T cells migrated towards SARS-CoV-2 to attack it. So because we've been exposed to common cold viruses in the past, our body has immune memory to sure. this virus. Even though it's a different virus, it's similar to other coronaviruses of the past. So some northern countries, you scratch your head and go, well, is it the vitamin D or is it the fact that in previous cold seasons, gosh, we have memory to this and we have more important than your, your antibody response that you hear about in the news, oh, I'm going to get a shot and I'm going to get an antibody, you have your T-cell, this innate, your first-line fighter, your, your antibodies, your, your maids with brooms and your plumbers with wrenches, but your T-cells uh -huh. and natural killer cells, they're your soldiers with grenades and bazookas. They're the ones that are the first-line 
you know, they shake hands with every cell in your body, friend or foe, all day long. And if there's an invaded cell by a virus, they blow it up and clear it out. And that's why kids. So, so you're so you're, you're saying it's like you didn't have to call the plumber. My wife was really disappointed. She went for a antibody test last week, and it came up negative, and she was disappointed. Um, but you're saying that's that's clearly not necessarily a proof that she didn't get it or wasn't exposed to it in a way that her body is already immune. Right, and and from a from a just a general health point of view, really we want that strong first line, that innate. The antibody side is your adaptive immune system. That's the mop up. That's the preventative of future stuff. But if you have a strong innate immune response, and again, vitamin D upregulates these natural killer cells that are so critical in fighting off infections. Children have these cells at two to three times the levels of adults with two to three times the, the cellular activity that adult cells do. That's why these kiddos do great with this virus in particular. Um, they have that first-line defense. So, you know, but, but, you but why, strong... are, why are they so bad off with, with the flu and other colds? Like, you know, obviously, um, I got four young kids. I know you got six, right? Six kids. Um, you're, yeah, older, older than mine. But, you know, the baby always has a running. I mean, young kids, they're always congested with stuff. So what's sure. the deal that with, you know, they're always getting these viruses and infections. But when it comes to SARS-CoV-2, it's like jarring. Like, you know, they're like almost basically immune to, to it. Well, and, and that's the critical and essential part of childhood is – you know, I joke, yes, eat dirt, pet the puppy, pet the lambs, go to the farm, be exposed to as many things as possible. You know, we live in this society of safetyism. Oh, I, I don't want a microbe. I don't want, you know, a, a hangnail. You know, everything's dangerous. But it's critical for children to be in a mixture of other children, uh, an inflammatory milieu. You want them to be exposed. They live in their little petri dishes of preschool and school. You know, being exposed to mild colds and mild infections. And yeah, they've got the runny nose. And yes, they get the occasional ear infection, et cetera. But that's training them for a lifetime of immune health. So, so let, me, we let me take that isolate, to the next level. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. The, the, well, okay, you're, you're, you're saying it. So that was my question. So once we lock them down and deny this blessing and treat it like a curse, like, oh, COVID's a problem for them when it's not a problem. And the reason it's not a problem is because of the built-up immunity that we didn't make them a bubble boy. What are going to be the long-term effects of making them bubble boys? Yeah, exactly. So they're going, if you sit in a chair for three weeks and then get up and try to run a marathon, I guarantee your legs aren't going to move. Well, the same thing with our immune response. We take these children out of that environment where their immune system is finely tuned from that chronic exposure. Now we've weakened their immune response. And we know from world studies from Germany, from Norway, from Sweden, from North Carolina, children are not the primary transmitters of this disease. That was a lie. We have the data. It is more probable for an adult to transmit downward to a child than a, a child to transmit upward to an adult. Classrooms what, what, are safe. What's the reason for that? Well, multiple reasons. Number one, the children get a much milder course of the disease due to this innate immune response that I'm, I'm discussing. And adults don't have that, that quick response. Um, you know, it's a mul multiple factors. 
but children are generally healthier and children clear the virus very quickly. And we've shown in studies around the world this whole concept of asymptomatic spread. You know, these asymptomatic carriers of disease, technically you spread once you're symptomatic. And yes. the world studies have proven this as well. So we've, we've isolated so many people. And why are so many people asymptomatic carriers? Well, they have strong innate immune responses that I may be carrying the virus, but I'm keeping it in check, which means I have a lower viral load and I'm less probable to spread it. Same thing with these little children. They probably, because of that innate, innate immune response, have a lower viral load and that makes them less likely to spread it because they keep it in check faster and have a shorter course of disease than adults do. And they survive this at a statistically 100% from age 0 to 18. You know, 99.9997%, yeah, three-ninths of the 7% of all American children survive COVID this year. Wow. And, uh, and, and, we, and we won't take the blessing. We won't take yes for an answer as a nation. But you said something interesting that I think has... Um, bearings even for adults. So this whole notion of locking people, you know, suspecting everyone, everyone at any moment, even if they had the virus, didn't have it, had the vaccine, didn't have it, this and that, maybe you're asymptomatic. Isn't it true from the studies that have come out that it's not just that asymptomatic don't really transmit it that often, but I've seen studies that even if they would, that, because you seem to be saying this, that the degree of transfer is kind of commensurate to the um, severity of the primary infection. So, you know, this notion that you could have a silent killer, this guy is like totally happy as a lark, and it could give someone a deadly case of it. it isn't it usually you would transmit a mild case? Yeah, and, and, and that's a great point because we've turned fear into a virtue this year, this past year. And so be afraid, be afraid, be afraid of everybody, be afraid of this, be afraid of that. If you have mild symptoms, you likely have mild load. And we got scared early, oh, one person can spread it to two or three people. This is not the measles. And then we found later, it's not one person spreading it to two. It's about 20% of people spreading it to 80% of people. It's called the K rate instead of the R rate. And so these super spreaders tend to be a sick person. And what have we known for decades? Good grief. If you're sick, stay home. You know, yeah. wash your hands if you're sick, stay home. We've known this for eons, public health message, D basic duh. Um, so, yeah, a milder case of disease and or asymptomatic carrier of disease is highly unlikely based on the world data and statistics. Now, you know, we have a great retrospective. We know exactly who to protect. We know exactly who needs to be isolated? It, you know, if we've learned anything in the past year, and we really knew it three weeks into this pandemic, who do we need to protect? And then just take basic common sense. Let's get back to normal function in the society. Am I saying this is not a deadly disease? No, I'm not. It's a deadly disease to those in high age groups. We know the, the age and risk stratification. And we can be smart about this instead of going, again, henny penny or again, turning fear into a virtue in the way we behave as a society. But it's, but it's more than that, doctor. It's not just, oh, you know, this is only a problem for some people. Let's focus our attention on them. It's, 
we care very much about those people. And indeed, our government isn't servicing them. So I want to transition this into part of your discussion. There's videos of you online talking about this. We talked about vitamin D, which is really more of a long-term thing. We should have been doing that always, should be doing it now for other pathogens as well. But short-term, okay, someone's scared of getting it, or they test positive. So right now, our government's like, shut up, mask up, and don't get it. But then you get it anyway. Half of L.A. got it, even though they all Mm -hmm. wore masks walking their dogs outside. Um, Correct. And government's like, basically, I have nothing for you. You better hope you only get a mild case, because if you get a severe case, we have nothing for you until it turns into cytokine storm or thrombosis. And then we have some beautiful remdesivir at 3,000 a pop and a ventilator waiting for you. And nothing else. There's no treatment. Nothing you can do. Talk a little bit about what you feel you've prescribed. And, you know, again, this is not official um, medical guidance. Talk to your doctor. But what you think scientifically is working as pro- good prophylaxis, good early treatment. What sort of cocktails are you looking at? Well, certainly. So, yeah, I, you know, primarily, yes, I, I get my immune system healthy, vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C, and acetylcysteine. So I have my immune priming things, a little bit of selenium that I take just make sure my immune system's tuned. But we have engaged as a nation in therapeutic nihilism. Our governmental agencies, oh, there's nothing, go home. If your lips turn blue, come to the hospital. Well, (laughs) historically, doctors, when a new disease comes along, they immediately say, okay, we have all these old drugs. Let's trial them and see in the laboratory, is, is there efficacy of any old drug against a new disease? That's normally what we do. We don't go to the pharmaceutical companies and say, hey, can you build us a kajillion dollar drug? And for example, remdesivir has killed 450 people this past year. So, you know, these quick drugs to market don't have these proven safety records. Meanwhile, there are drugs on the market that, you know, so prophylactically, what have I done? I've swabbed thousands upon thousands of patients personally face-to-face with, you know, thousands of COVID sick patients this year. Early in the pandemic, I knew hydroxychloroquine was an excellent preventative, the way it allows zinc. So hydroxychloroquine's a gun, zinc's a bullet. It lets zinc get into your cell. It inhibits a viral replicator. I know it was controversial. It got lambasted in the socials and the media and the news. They did awful studies to make it look bad because they used it at the wrong time in, in the disease. I can make exactly. any drug I can make any drug look bad, and you know the the dose makes the poison. I can poison you with water. You know water is poisonous in the wrong dose. I can give any drug at the wrong course of the disease, late in the disease, and it won't work. So I can make any drug in any study look bad, but if you look at the studies early and prophylactically, there's a lot of data and a lot of randomized control trials that that worked. And okay, I know that one's controversial, so I'll step away from that one. I took that one for a while. Thousands of patients face-to-face, I never got sick, nor did my technicians that work with me swabbing patients, and we're talking almost 100,000 patients. So between myself and, and four employees, none of them got covid face-to-face with 100,000 people, of the which thousands were sick. So that crew prophylaxed. Well, when I saw the, the world studies come out on ivermectin, um, I switched about three months ago because the data was even stronger. Preventative. Even stronger, did, yeah. Even stronger. In Argentina, they took 800 healthcare workers, put them on ivermectin once a week for two months during their big outbreak. Of the 800, zero got COVID. Meanwhile, in their placebo group, 237 got COVID. And so I thought, gosh, that's pretty strong prophylactic preventative data. And then what happened, and then this is kind of a personal story, 
and, and I know you had Dr. McCullough on the other day, and I highly re- recommend that interview that you had with him because he's really shown that if we use not, not just ivermectin or hydroxy, but budesonide and colchicine, we can decrease the death rate by 85% in this disease if we treat early. Never in the history of medicine have we said to a patient, gosh, you have a bacterial pneumonia. Once you're in the ICU, then I'll give you an antibiotic. <laughs> right? So, so, so in other words, this stuff is not like, like the rain dance or the moon dance, which is their stuff. Um, wear a mask. Uh, well, okay, what does that have to do with anything? What you're saying is that this stuff specifically targets viral replication and then inflammatory response that leads to cytokine storm. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it changes the balance of which arm of the immune system is doing what. And that's the beautiful mechanism of these. I mean, I could go get really scientific and go into all the mechanisms, but the big picture is the world where they've been using especially ivermectin, you know, their death rates in the randomized placebo trials, 68% less. You add in the observational trials, death rates are 75% less. You use it starting early in the disease and the death rates are 86% less. They're and that's the key. That's, that's yeah, the key, meaning, meaning, meaning you stop the, the cytokine storm. I mean, now I didn't understand this a year ago, but I mean, this should be obvious. Any layman should be able to understand that that, you know, it's like someone runs a clever football play, a running play up the field. All right, well, you saw it once, it was clever. But now you should see the play coming. It's nothing novel about this virus. We know the, the tricks it, it plays. So this, you're, you're saying this would preempt that entire reaction that's very hard to deal with once it's, you know, playing out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and. When my, my first experience was my younger brother, and he's an obese type 1 diabetic, lives in another state. He called me. He said, hey, I'm really sick, COVID positive. I can't breathe, chest pains, lung pains, 9 out of 10, headache, back, you know, all the symptoms. And he said, I'm on my way to the emergency room. I said, you know, look, I just switched myself to ivermectin. Let me call your pharmacy, see if I can get, get it to you. Well, he went and picked it up. Took his first dose. He calls me six hours later. He said, um, my pleuritic lung pain is from nine out of 10 down to two out of 10. And then the next evening he calls me and says, hey, my oxygen saturations have gone from 86 back up to 98 in 24 hours. And then the next day he said, I have a sniffle. All my other symptoms are gone. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, Dr. Corey and the FLCCC.net, the Frontline COVID Critical Care Consortium, these guys are brilliant. They have the world data. And I had read their world data, and I I had watched their presentations, and I thought, you know, this saved my brother's life. And I took an oath in medicine, you know, first do no harm, obviously, but what we're doing societally you know, when I say first do no harm, it means physical harm, mental harm, and financial harm to the patient. And I think we've lost that ethic. I mean, so many doctors have, you know, MD means minor deity to them. And to me, it means make a difference. And we're, we're getting into these egos and authoritarianism in medicine and algorithmic treatment instead of, gosh, let the doctors be the doctors. And yes. when you see something that has a signal that works, step in and save a life. And I am my brother's keeper. I saved my brother's life. And he spread the word, and then it kind of snowballed from there. And I'm not saying it's the silver bullet. And a lot of people, if you get it early, it works. And again, I agree with Dr. McCullough. Budesonide, colchicine, hydroxychloroquine and zinc, uh, ivermectin. There are early treatments. So 
I do get tired when we hear from pulpits in governments of state, um, from big hospital systems, from the feds, oh, there's no treatment for COVID. I'm like, oh my goodness, yes, there is. I've saved lives with it and many yep. super high-risk comorbid lives. So it's very frustrating as a physician to see the system so broken and the messaging so wrong. No, absolutely. Man, there's, there's a lot more we can go into on that, but we're, we're rapidly running out of time. I want to move on to PCR tests. I mean, look, you're, you're the first uh, uh, director of a lab that I've ever run into um, in this era. Um, a lot of people are talking about the controversy with the CT levels, the cycle thresholds. On the one hand, we do know that a lot of people genuinely kind of get it, but they have that innate immune system, very strong response, wards off the symptoms immediately, T-cells are activated. So, you know, they kind of might be positive, um, but then we do know that there seem to be false positives to high CT thresholds. Um, could you talk about, you know, where where the rubber meets the road on the semantics of what is a false positive versus a, a negligible no, uh, you know, nebulous positive. What are the CT thresholds a problem? Why haven't the labs ad adapted? What are you seeing? That's an excellent question. It's very nuanced. Um, all the different machines or the way we extract the RNA are different platforms with different sensitivities. So it's kind of apples to oranges. So a CT in my lab with a research grade equipment is not the same as some commercial lab with a more high throughput. So a CT of 30 in my lab is very sensitive and specific. In a big lab, it may be less sensitive and specific. So when you hear people clamoring for, I want to know the CT value, it, it's apples to oranges, lab to lab to lab, because of the way everything's validated. So that's, it, it's a challenge in that regard, and I could go on you know, for a detailed hour about that, but I won't. But here's the important thing. A PCR test is a snapshot in time, virus present, not present. And, and I've seen this go both ways. So say you have a patient with a CT of 34, you're like, well, that's very little virus. Well, they can either be going out of disease or going into disease. You're only getting a snapshot in time because I've had, you know, some people I work with that did get COVID. They were 34 one day and four days later, they were down at 15, meaning a lot of virus. So I was catching them at the early phase going in and vice versa, you know, you may test someone, they have a lot of virus, you know, they amplify at CT15, and a, you know, a week later, they're up above 32 or 33, and beyond which you pretty much can't culture virus anymore, so they're no longer infectious. So one thing that's been challenging is we're throwing a dart and saying, okay, you're, you've detected positive, but I don't know what it means if you're in a certain range because we don't know where on the curve of disease you are. Are you going in or are you coming out? So sequential testing is actually more important. We've done this with other viruses as you check antibodies early, antibodies late, and you look at the course of disease. So, you know, that's kind of the nuance of PCR. I mean, some of the rapid protein tests, and I, yeah, I helped develop uh, the most sensitive rapid test on the market. We're in regulation processes right now. We've got our overseas CE mark, but it's a little 10-minute test. And it, this is the kind of thing where... You know, you do a little self-swab in the nose, put a couple drops, kind of like a pregnancy test, shine a light, and in 10 minutes, you know, do I have virus, don't I have virus? And, I mean, this is the way we open up concert venues, stadiums. Um, you know, if, if the school systems are panicked about kids, you don't have to wait a day to get a PCR back. In, in five, 10 minutes, you have, hey, look, this whole 
classrooms clear. Let's just keep on normal life. So there are things out there, and not just my test, there are plenty of others out there, but there, there are ways where we don't need to be so panicked. And the testing, yes, we needed it early. Of course, we didn't know what was going on. Precautionary principle, um, applying a very complex PCR lab test to a big population doesn't here, – here, here's my, my uh, I guess, philosophical hang-up. You know, you have mono, I have mono, you have CMV, I have CMV, you're carrying strep, I'm carrying strep. Just because I'm carrying something doesn't make me a case of a disease. So interestingly, this past year in medicine, we've redefined what a case is. You know, historically in the clinics, you know, and I worked ER family medicine for years and derm clinics, et cetera. So, you know, I'm, I'm a laboratorian with a clinical background. If a patient has symptoms and is carrying a disease, well, then they're a manifestation. They're a case of that disease. I mean, you have shingles, I have shingles. That's, you know, the chickenpox virus. It's in our body. But if I don't have shingles right now, it doesn't, I'm not a case of shingles. So we've shown these curves of case, 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 case. But in my opinion, it's, well, there are people carrying the virus, but many of them have potent immune systems keeping it at bay. It doesn't mean they're a case of the disease. It just means I can detect virus in them with a very, very sensitive lab test. So we've, again, engendered this kind of panic and fear in society of look at the case rate. And I say, no, let's look at the hospitalization death rates. That's really what we need to track. Sure, a virus may be prevalent for a set time in society, but, you know, those curves don't mean as much as we give them credence because how many of those are actually symptomatic, quote, cases? The other thing I wanted you to answer with the PCR testing is that it does appear that certain um, coronavirus colds are back in circulation in parts of the country that appear to have a little bit of a re-upping of the case rates. And my concern was, it almost seems like we can never get below a certain floor, even when we know it's not really, like, you know, in, in, in December, we knew it was really spreading in most places in the country, uh, likewise, uh, last March, April. But right now, is there a concern that some of the PCR testing might be picking up some of the H coves. I, I have read literature about this with SARS one um, interacting or the PCR test detecting what was really H cove OC 43. Is that a concern with SARS cov two? Um, again, good question. So it depends on the lab and, and that's the challenge. So the primer that you use to amplify the virus um, in our lab, we used use a very conserved nucleocapsid. If you have a primer for that or the spike, you can have a very specific test that's not showing any potential interfering viruses. To your point that you were asking earlier, if you go too high on the CT values, then you do start amplifying junk, and then you do start getting false positives. So I do I do share that concern that in in the labs where they go up, you know, above 38 or up to 40 or 45. I think some of that data can be meaningless because now you're just amplifying, you know, a junk sequence. But in terms of cross-detecting, I mean, these, these are very sensitive and specific assays. So to be very precise, you try to design your primers so that you are not catching any other cross-reactive virus. Got it. Okay. I mean, because that, that's an important one is we're looking and thinking that we're close to herd immunity, and then you start seeing a bunch of cases, 
Which leads me to the next thing. I really want to get your broad take on where do you see the virus now? Where do you see this state of play with immunity, um, kind of geographical areas? Where do you see this headed? And as you discuss that, talk a little bit about natural immunity. Most people have been brainwashed to think that this virus is different than every other virus, um, that you somehow you don't get immunity. Um, they obsess about antibodies, and they say it wanes after a few months, and people think you don't have immunity, so much to the point that you have people that have had a very symptomatic case of the, of the virus, and they're running to get vaccinated, thinking that that will um, provide better protection than their natural immunity. Now the, the, the luckiest people of all are those who have had COVID and gotten through it because they have a broad, broad natural immunity. Um, you know, you get a shot, uh, experimental investigational vaccine, gene therapy, whatever you want to call them. Um, you don't have but a few neutralizing antibodies. And even those shots haven't been shown to provide immunity. You know, those have decreased symptoms. Statistically, their end point in their studies was just to decrease a symptom and decrease hospitalization. You know, it doesn't, those don't even fall under the, the CDC definition of a vaccine is supposed to provide immunity against a pathogen. So if you have had a natural infection, and a lot of people have now, we have a much, much broader antibody response in our body, hundreds and hundreds of antibodies, you know, tens and tens and tens of which can be neutralizing, not, a, not just against the spike, not just against, yeah, also you have them against the nucleocapsid, the envelope membrane, all sorts of other proteins on the shell of this virus. So you have a broad immunity. And in addition to that, you have a stronger T-cell memory that we talked about before. And again, a lot of us from other common cold coronaviruses as a population, we already, and I agree with the doctor at Johns Hopkins, it says, hey, look, we're, we're almost there. You know, we're almost to a herd immunity. What are the variants going to do? I don't know. Are some of the variants potentially worse? I hear the panic in the news. You know, a good, broad, healthy immune response, we should have cross coverage against those. Um, but as we inject for last year's Wuhan strain of the virus, we may be selecting for variants and putting a, an evolutionary selection pressure forward on the variants. And that may be why we're kind of at that plateau you described. As more people get the shot, now we have an antibody against last year's virus and we're pushing it forward into the variants that escape the vaccine. So instead of, you know, chasing, you know, and here's the silliness is, is, okay, so are we going to give a booster against the, the Brazil, the UK, the South Africa, which variant, you know, is always going to evolve. Viruses evolve. So my point is, the treatments cover, the early treatments mm, cover, cover all everything. variants, all variants. They cover everything. And, and again, immune health, immune health and early treatment, you don't have to worry about the variants and then vaccines that can potentially harm us down the road. That's, and I've had all my vaccines. Kids have had all my vaccines. I'm pro safety, long-term proven vaccines, but I'm, I am very dubious of a new technology never used on humanity before with no long-term safety data. And we know historically all coronavirus vaccines, SARS, MERS, um, animal coronavirus vaccines have led to this immune priming that when exposed to enough of a different coronavirus a, down the road, say a year or two later, can lead to horrible immune reactions and death in some of the mammal trials. So 
I think from, again, a precautionary note, what long-term safety do we have on these experimental shots that have never been used on humanity before? We have none. We have no long-term safety data. And, uh, a vaccine to get to market usually has six to eight years of safety data. And the quickest we ever had a vaccine in market was the mumps, and that was four years. And why? And you know, Fauci says, oh, gosh, we see, we see most uh, adverse reactions in the 15 to 45-day period. Well, he knows as a vaccinologist that with coronaviruses, um, that's not true. We see them down the road. Mm -hmm. Just like if you read the history of the dengue fever uh, vaccine um, that was given in the Philippines and the hundreds of children that died that had gotten the vaccine versus those who hadn't when they were exposed to the next strain of the virus, that's called an antibody-dependent enhancement reaction or immune priming. We know there are certain families of viruses that are very prone to this. And coronaviruses, again, history is an excellent teacher in life. And if we look at the history of what we tried, there's a reason the FDA stopped the SARS-CoV-1 mm. vaccine trials yep. after they looked at the mammal models. And same thing, they had that in papers this summer. You know, we need to proceed with caution with SARS-CoV-2 in the NIH's statement in October on these vaccines, we really need to make sure we consider antibody-dependent enhancement. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of went away. Everybody's like, I'm not worried about it. And from a medical point of view, I look at it and go, we are doing a massive experiment on tens of millions of people around the world. And again, I hope I'm wrong. You know, sure. I'm just hoping I'm wrong. But I, but I look at history. And, and I hope to be proven wrong. And I think the broader point hear. is that that what we do know is is experimental and they're treating something experimental as if it's completely grounded whereas what's completely grounded and has been dispensed 4 billion doses with ivermectin hydroxychloroquine and it's been used for you know in the case of hydroxy autoimmune diseases we 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 they treat that as if it's experimental they kind of flip it on its head right. Right. Yeah. I mean, ivermectin, 4 billion doses have been given around the world over the last 40 years. There have been 16 deaths, maybe, you know, associational, maybe two for sure. Same thing with hydroxychloroquine, you know, 65 years of proven safety. And the, and the FDA's job isn't to say you can use this for this or that. I mean, they, they, they do that, but their job is to prove, pr prove safety of a treatment. And these two drugs have been approved for decades and decades, and they're safe. Meanwhile, I mean, in the last four months, we've had more deaths from these injections than we have in any other vaccine trial combined. There's over 16, as of last night, 1,600 deaths under investigation, 38,000 adverse events. And adverse events, Harvard showed years ago, adverse events are reported at about 1%. So you can multiply those 38,000 adverse events by tens and tens and tens. Sure. And so, I mean, think of a, a child crib. And, and again, this is risk-benefit analysis, your body, your choice. You know, if you feel like you want an investigational shot because you're in a high-risk group and you, you feel you're going to benefit, I guess that's your body, your choice. I'm just saying we need to go into it with fully informed consent. Yep. Let's say a child car seat or a crib broke and two or three kids died or some tire blows up and they recall it because 10 people got injured. You know, we have a product on the market right now that's killed, you know, getting upwards towards 2,000 people and, you know, has injured 38,000 people with adverse events, hospitalization, urgent care visits, et cetera. 
why have they not halted this? You look overseas, AstraZeneca, after 100 clots, they stopped their rollout. Sure. I mean, that was ethical to say, let's now, stop. Now, and look they'll, at this. they'll say that's a tiny percentage and it's worth the benefit given the amount of people dying from the virus. Yeah, but what if you treated early instead sure. of exposing somebody to, you know, I, I like to make the statement. Meaning it, it, meaning, yeah. meaning it presupposes that there's no other options. Exactly, exactly. And that's the false narrative. They're giving this narrative, this is your only choice. And independent physicians around the country and the world are saying, look, we have early treatments that are very effective and are working phenomenally. And I've seen that firsthand. And so a therapy is temporary and can be beneficial. An antibody can be forever. And if it's a good antibody, great. But if yep. it's a bad one that can cause immune disease down the road, autoimmune disease, or uh, an adverse reaction when it has a hyperimmune response to a new variant down the road, that antibody's forever. So, again, it's a, it's a gamble and roll of the dice of this sure. benefit analysis. And, 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 I, and I think, but are we making an informed choice, or you know, are we that, violating that's what the bothers me. code? That's what bothers me. To me, I don't necessarily think it's an airball, like no efficacy and only problems. But clearly, they're downplaying the problems. They're they're playing up the efficacy when we see that. Um, and I'll send you later. There's a great scatter uh, diagram put out by our friends at Rational Ground, um, going through all the 50 states, and there's no correlation with better results. Um, you know, the the vaccine. It's very frustrating because the vaccine came out literally right when the winter curve was was subsiding naturally anyway, and everyone agrees to that. So really, you know, there's it's hard to tell what's going on here. It's hard to tell if people had the vaccine, wound up being infected, um, because it is a period of low spread. We'll we'll find out later. Um, but but you know, especially coupled with the fact that they are censoring stuff that's not experimental. It works. It doesn't risk um, you know creating the spike protein and then creating the reaction to it it just straight up preempts the inflammatory reaction uh, ivermectin and all this stuff but we're i do want to do a separate show on this with you just on the vaccines because we didn't we don't have enough time to really really broach that but i i <laughs> yeah, want to get to two quick surface. really 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 quick things i gotta ask you about this you're a pathologist and you're also always looking at testing specimens the flu. I got to ask you about this. Um, one of the most amazing things that everyone's seeing, the disappearance of the flu, northern, southern hemisphere for the entire year. Um, you know, obviously, they're putting it on the magical mask, even though, ironically, that's a self-admission. It's not working for COVID. And all the studies showed that our RCTs have shown it doesn't work for the flu. And indeed, they were doing it at times and in places um, I mean, the flu has disappeared in places and at times where they weren't doing the mass. It's definitely not that. We've disproven that on in my columns, my writing. What do you think it is? What is the truth? I'll tell you. It's science. It's virology. And it's an interesting study area called social virology. Mm. So microbes suppress each other. There's little peptides that are produced by bacteriophages, viruses uh, called arbitrium peptides. Viruses talk to each other. So if you look historically, say, one year in Europe, you'll see the cold is predominant one year, the flu the next year, the cold, the flu. So the common cold can suppress the flu. Well, coronaviruses are kind of in a cold family of viruses. 
So one virus can trigger the genes of another to say, it's not your season, it's not your turn. They actually communicate with each other and have these suppressor genes and suppressor signalings. It's this little microbiome that talks to each other. So everybody says, look, we did all these measures to, to stop the flu and it worked. No, one virus was dominant and it sent a signal to another virus. It's not your turn. I'm dominant over you through a gene signal. And we've historically seen this for decades. And now uh, with new techniques in science, we're discovering how they do this and delving into the science of, gosh, microbes communicate. And microbes, it's not your season, you're on the bench this year. And that's exactly what this virus has done to the flu. It, it has sent a signal and a, a suppressor signal. And so the flu this year is low. And I predict, again, you follow the curves, flu cold virus, flu, cold virus. And you can look at this in the curves of North America, curves of Europe, and the history of which strains of what virus are dominant each year. It's all natural. It's unbelievable. We think we are so powerful. And then the few things God gives us to actually combat it, we, uh, <laughs> we censor. It's truly criminal. I got to run, but I want to at least broach one criminal aspect of what went on you don't obviously don't just oversee pcr testing that's certainly not your main thing you look at biopsies you look at all sorts of things tell me yes. what you have been tracking and what's been trending um in terms of cancer and other things as a result of the unnatural shutdowns that that were foisted upon our people last year we are poised for a tragedy over the next year or two in the last three months, I have seen 10 times the uterine and women's health cancers that I see in a month, the last three months, because for three to six to nine months, it was difficult for people to get into their doctor because the doctor was afraid of the patient and the patient was a pathogen. And because of that, we've missed out on screenings. And through the microscope, through the laboratory, and I see, you know, one to 200 patients a day through the microscope. So I see a lot of tissue, and I have already seen that uptick of missed cancers that weren't diagnosed early, and we are poised for a very unfortunate outcome because of our hyper response to a manageable virus. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Like you're seeing larger tumors than you would usually see? Yeah, they're at a more aggressive stage. Wow. If we had caught them earlier, we could have cured them earlier. So I'm, I'm looking at them instead of at early stage one, we're seeing them at stage two, stage three disease, you know, thicker, uglier oh my appearance gosh. under the microscope, more aggressive. And had those patients been able to access their clinician early for screening and or upon first sign of symptoms, we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing now. And this is only going to amplify over the next you know, year or two because of what we missed for screening and catching things early in these patients. So we repudiated the science we know for a false god idolatry that didn't work and to come full circle with what we started off with. You are telling me that we went and denied early treatment for COVID at the, you know, promise of some not getting it or late treatment that didn't work, remdesivir, ventilators, whatever. And in the process in doing so, we had a shutdown that precluded early treatment for other things like cancer, 
early treatment's the key to everything. That's pretty amazing in a horrific way. Um, that I, I just want our listeners to know, you are looking through microscopes all day. You run a big lab in Idaho. So to me, that's really jarring to hear that from you. We, we've been talking about this for a year anecdotally or, you know, logically, you know, you, you have all the uh, breast cancer screenings and, and uh, colonoscopies that are, you know, that didn't happen for three, four months in some places. You know, it's got to make a difference. But you're saying you actually saw it. Okay, one year, okay, 2017, 2018, 2019, and then suddenly you have one year where, wait a minute, these gross are, I'm seeing larger growths much more often. I'm seeing it firsthand. Yeah, and the rate, the rate of disease, because Jeez. people did miss all those visits you just described. I'm seeing it firsthand. I, statistically, I'm seeing it. It's right in front of me daily now. I, I'm telling you, um, Dr. Cole. And, yeah. and I've been doing this for 18 years, so I know the patterns of what I see on an annual basis. That, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, in, in, again, in a horrific way. I mean, if I set about a year ago this time to say how I could destroy a civilization in a way to actualize all of the detriments of every strategy and none of the benefits, I could not have conjured up a better strategy. Um, it's truly shocking. We, we actualized the worst outcomes of COVID and the worst outcomes of, its res of, of the response to it and the collateral damage boxing out i mean this, this is geez wow this this was spellbound I, I am just like i'm i'm uh shocked at this and i mean, i wish i would have found you earlier on but dr cole thanks so much for joining us you're welcome to come on anytime real quick before i let you go could you do a public service and let us know where can people who have are having trouble finding um prophylactic or early treatment that they want to get a hold of, where could they even get it if their doctor doesn't want to play ball with them? There are some uh, online physicians. Um, if you go to flccc.net, they have some physicians listed there. Um, I think frontline doctors have some physicians listed on their site. Um, myfreedoctor.com, uh, pushhealth.com. And again, I, I have no interest in any company, any drug. I don't, I don't do any of, of, you know, I'm not a part of that. I'm not pushing anything. These are generics and inexpensive anyway. But there are, are plenty of good doctors. They will do a, a health questionnaire, make sure that, you know, you, do, you know, these are very, very, very safe medications. But they do still want to make sure that, you know, that that fraction of a percent, it's safe for that individual too. Sure. But, but, you know, I'll, I'll defer to my colleagues in, in, in that regard. But there, there are many there that are willing. And, you know, where I've done it, it's been, you know, just close, tight circles here because I'm so busy in the lab. I, I don't see patients as often, but I had to step up and save some lives where I had to because no one was doing it where I am uh, sure. for a good while until I was able to educate others. But those are, those are some resources. And, you know, we in medicine take that oath to first do no harm. And uh, if, if you would let me, I'd like to, you know, just to end with a quote um, from George Washington. And it's, if freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. And the, yeah, I just appreciate the opportunity to share, you know, free speech on, on your program and share medical truth that's kind of being suppressed. And, and it's very frustrating in a noble profession where we take an oath to do no harm and to save lives, to see it politicized into something that we should all be on the same page. 
And I'm, I'm absolutely willing to take criticism from colleagues, but I invite them to sit down to coffee or lunch and let's go over the data. Let's yep. look at the actuality, the reality. Yep, yep. And, 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 and to let us know what is their plan, because saying you're not going to get it when 40% of the country did, regardless of what they did, and say your only option is remdesivir and a ventilator, that ain't going to cut it. So, you know, it's time to, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a politician, okay? I'm a media guy. Uh, you know, that's what I do. If you're really a doctor, I want to hear about cytokine storm. I want to hear about how to how to um, prevent that replication, how to prevent the inflammatory response. If you don't have anything for me, then you're not a doctor. Then I, then I don't need you. You know, that's that's the way I feel. We need medical intervention, medical advice, not non-pharmaceutical interventions. That's nonsense, um, as has been proven. Dr. Cole, thanks so much for joining us. Really looking forward to having you back again, and God bless you in your work and raising awareness. Go educate your governor, your state senate. They're, they need it. Um, because they don't know any of this stuff. And folks, we are just about out of time. Make sure you take notes, um, listen to that again. There's a lot more where that came from, by the way. Uh, he he knows a lot. Let me know if you have any other just interesting scientific questions, medical questions. I could always ask him. He's very forthcoming. Um, I, it, why, why does it take people like me? I'm just saying there's nothing right or left or political about this. This is what's so shocking. Why haven't these people been in front of state legislatures for 12 months and and most of them are still not doing it? They're still flying blind. It's shocking. Shocking. And mind you, this guy, you know, of all people, could make a fortune off the racket. You know, he's into the testing, right? So he could could totally... um, you know, say, yeah, this is really bad. We got to test people for the rest of our lives. No, he's trying to tell the truth because he, he is an independent practice and that's independent lab. And that, that's the key. Everyone else is bought out by the cartel. Um, so you need, need to find these people. Um, folks, we went super long. It's probably the longest show I've done in, in, in ages. I'm doing that to give you guys a little extra attention. I will be out on Monday. So this is going to compensate. I, I need a break. I'm at a breaking point it's also passover uh is coming anyway um so it's kind of good timing um you know i just want to end off you know we're headed into easter good friday passover and you know i was thinking this is really much more of a spiritual battle than any intellectual or even physical battle people could only buy into this if their spiritual vitamin D is depleted. And that's really what it is. Just like, you know, it, your your signals go haywire, like he was talking about with the cytokines. It's the same thing too. If, if you don't have a healthy level of spirituality, of biblical values of God in your life, you're susceptible to these lies. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Um, you know, Passover is the celebration of the exodus from Egypt that God established at that moment that no human being has the right to rule over another human being. This is really what our founders drew upon when they uh, created the Republic. They had a lot of reference to the Exodus from Egypt. They felt that they were um, kind of like the new Israelites, which is why a lot of places in America are named after, you know, Bethlehem and uh, Bethel and, you know, Mount Carmel, things like that. Uh, th- that, that is the thing. We violated that this time last year. The notion that one human being, a government, could rule over another human being's body. 
um, that is not okay. That is never okay, even when there's real science, you know? Based on today's show, if we agree to the premise that government could rule over your body, then government should be mandating that you consume zinc and vitamin D and go on a diet and only eat certain certain foods and take prophylactically hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. If we are okay with that, then at least we should do that, and that would be actually following the science. But of course, even if you are following the science, you have to follow God's law first. But as it turns out, usually when you don't follow God's law and you don't follow the Constitution, you ain't following science either. So I hope this was informative. I'll be back on Tuesday, long break here. We're going to get back to some of our other stuff, but these are the shows we're going to keep doing. Thank you for your support. Send this to everyone you know, if nothing else, just so they know where to go, how to treat this um, if they do test positive uh, so people don't die. We are the ones who actually care about human life from COVID and from everything else, and we're going to continue spreading the truth. Until next week, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.